News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We were just chatting this morning about, you know, brands that we miss, nostalgia for old stores, retail in particular. It's because Zellers is back. If you go to Zellers.com, there it is. Website is back online. Within a couple of weeks, they're going to have products for sale there. And I bet it'll be almost like they never left. So I'm asking you, look, what do you miss? Um, Love this text message that we got from Lou. Lou said, I am still using my space saver kitchen table with two stools that I purchased with my Club Z points over 30 years ago from Zellers. Love it, Lou. I'm sure there's other people out there who are still using something that they bought at Zellers, probably using their club's head points. Uh, let me know about that. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Hey, let's check in with our Raju Sohal this morning. Do you remember Zellers? Do I ever? So and I good. remember when you'd walk into Zellers, like, yes, you'd see that massive red, like electric logo, which I loved. But you walked in there and you just got the sense that things were cheap and good. Like there's other stores that are also cheap, but you walk in and you go, ah, cheap and not great quality. But I remember feeling in Zellers like I am somewhere amazing. Yeah, I still have on my kitchen counter and it has moved with me. I guess I got it 30 years ago, but it has moved with me several times over the years. It My beautiful glass cake dome that I have. So it's like a glass uh, pedestal with a glass heavy, heavy lid that goes on top of it. And it's a cake dome. And it's always been on my counter. I always put stuff in it after I've baked. And I realized just this morning as I was thinking about Zellers, I'm like, it was from Zellers. That's where I got that from. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I recently saw a ratty teddy bear at a friend's house and I was like, why do you have that? Was it a teddy teddy bear like from Zellers? It was the Zeddy Teddy. It was the Zellers teddy bear. And I I was trying to remember like, why do I see, I've seen this before. And yes, it was that one that everyone had. I did not have one. So I am very excited about Zellers return. It's that nostalgia for it, you know? So do you remember Woodward's? I remember Woodward's. Again, like the logo really sticks out to me. I remember going through Eaton's and also feeling like I was somewhere really spectacular. Here's how old I am. So as a kid, (laughs) as a child, like when you had to go shopping to get things and you were going to the big department store, if you were going to Woodward's and the Bay, you went to Guilford. Yeah. If you were going to Eaton's or <laughs> Sears, you had to go to Surrey, Surrey Place, Place Mall. Yeah, you had to go to Surrey Place Mall. And on Fridays, we went to Surrey Place Mall. That was the thing with my dad. He had Fridays off and he'd be in his suit. Surrey Place Mall. Did you go, go to Laura Secord for ice cream? Because I did that we too. We sure did. And there was also a, a soft serve ice cream place in there, maybe called Little Drummer Boy or something like that. I don't know if that rings a bell. But Are we sounding old? Is that what's going on here? We're sounding... Uh, fond of older times. <laughs> sure, I'll go with that. And if people want to share their memories with us, like if there was a place, like will you shop this? Will you check out the new Zellers oh, yeah. website? Absolutely, absolutely I will. And like I, I am so eager to get into mortar and brick places. I don't love doing online shopping. So for me, it's nicer to be in store, but I will absolutely check the website. Yes, exactly, right? People have such great memories. Share your memories with us, Simi at cknw.com. Mark wrote me to say, memories of Oak Ridge in the late 1960s brings pleasant flashbacks. Good times, Mark says, when I was a little kid. Family friend and I would go shopping with my mom at the Woodward's food floor. 
I, I love the Woodward's food floor. And as little kids, we were always bored and restless. So boys being boys, Mark said we'd take an empty shopping cart and ride down the circular <laughs> ramp outside the Oak Ridge Mall. And he said, yep, memories of Oak Ridge bring back good memories uh, to this day. I feel like you're probably the age where malls smelled like cigarette smoke when oh, you were yeah, young. for sure. Because you were allowed to smoke inside. Also, like Oak Ridge used to be an outdoor mall. And it was probably in the mid 1980s, 84, 85, 86, somewhere around there where it was completely renovated and covered. And it's gone through several renovations since then. But prior to that, it was an outdoor mall. Wow. It was pretty cool. You're blowing my mind right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm feeling pretty old. So what else are we talking about? Oh, I just, I love this story that in Ireland, they need people to apply to become ferret catchers. And, you know, I have... <laughs> they're they're in need. The ferrets are being pesky, and you know what? I, I someone else shared this story with me, being like, "This is the perfect job for me, for them, not for myself." I don't know if you've ever had a wild animal suddenly find its way in your house. Listen, nothing has put the fear in me more than that. Like a ferret running a, well, around in your house, a bird. Uh, when I was in How's Scotland that, yeah. visiting my sister, a rat came in from the garden, and I screamed like nobody. <laughs> Never heard. <laughs> I used to work with someone briefly, I will admit, uh, and this was in a newsroom setting. And this person sat at the next, we had like a long row, and everybody had like a, a workspace in that row. And so this person was in the sitting in the next workspace next to me, no cubicles, no separations. And this person used to bring their ferrets to work with them. Get out of town. And so they had two ferrets that would rest on their shoulders or just like climb around and even thinking back, it gives me PTSD. I feel, I'm feeling that right now. It was the most (laughs) horrific thing. Oh, wow. Because I had, you know, I've never like ferrets, like, I don't know, it's weird. And that this person just brought them into work and kept telling them people were kind of freaked out by it. They would be like, oh, no, they're fine. They're fine. But, like, they would run around, like, They'd scurry, on this right? person and scurry. And, and I just, it was, I'm, when I think back now, even as I'm describing it to you, I feel like that could not possibly have happened. But it was real. Like, it was real. <laughs> Are you sure you didn't imagine this? No, I didn't imagine oh, it. Oh, the era before regulations, right? No one's bringing ferrets right. to work today. Thank it goodness. was so bizarre. So <laughs> bizarre on that one there. But ferret catcher, do they just have a lot of ferrets in this place? They do. They've got a lot of ferrets. You know, I would be a koala catcher. I would be a slow loris catcher. Want to hire me to cuddle those animals? You got it. But anything that scurries, like small enough to be described as a scurrier is like, no, that's a no for me. <laughs> My cat, which is, you know... Uh, indoor outdoor cat grew up on a farm so that's where we used to live uh, but then became a city cat never quite adjusted fully to being the city cat so um, still likes to go hunting we don't have a a mice or a rat problem knockwood because she's pretty good at keeping all that under control but a couple of times um, in the last couple years I guess she just she had her fill or she had done enough and she just brought one home and twice she brought one home that was still alive (gasps) to show off to show off and to just play with it in the house, I and it. I could hear this, and I thought, what is going on? And I got up, and I looked, and I was like, what are you doing? And then she got tired of it. She was like, yeah, I'm done, and walked away and left it alive. Kind of half alive. Oh, just nightmare. nightmare right? <laughs> That's my kind of cat, though. Really? A cat with purpose, yes. I don't know. I feel like this cat is toying with us. So <laughs> It's doing you, some work. You would have a full-on panic situation? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I've been in like the New York City subway and had like a you know rats scurry around there or, or live birds stuck under there, and like that puts the fear in me. But a couple of times I've been at my parents' house and they just always have all their windows open in the house, and birds, wild birds, have come in, and even if they're small ones, I just flip out because uh, I just yeah, I can't. <laughs> So fascinated by this. Um, So fascinated. Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know the healthcare system is under a lot of strain these days. And one of the stories that we've talked a lot about is the situation with our ambulance service and paramedics. It has been tough in many communities to get ambulance service. You know, sometimes they've had to reroute from other communities. It's just been tough all over. And now the contract was up for negotiation. But there is good news on that front. Joining us now is Troy Clifford, president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC. Good morning, Troy. Good morning, Simi. Thanks and, for having me on. And congratulations. So it sounds like you got a deal. Yes, we did. A tentative deal for sure. It's, uh, it's a real positive step for sure. What did it take? I understand there was a bit of a marathon negotiating session. It took a lot of work. <laughs> um, you know, I, you know uh, last week when we brought, well, we started in well, the contract expired in April, as you know, and then uh, doing a lot of work trying to deal with the issues that you let us in with, with a little trooper uh, to stir up the excitement. Uh, it but, works, uh, right? It totally works. It, it totally does. I love it. Um, but, uh, you know, and then over the summer and, you know, dealing with the issues that uh, are well documented. And then uh, we officially started bargaining at the table on October 3rd, had 40 days up till Friday uh, just before Christmas, we weren't making a lot of progress, and we were able to start to see some movement, and that's when we brought in uh, Mr. Reddy to assist us in, in getting a deal. He sent us home over the holidays to really continue to work what the, the progress we've seen before Christmas, and then came back last week. Uh, and then Thursday, Friday really is where we started to see movement and real common ground in, in, in the key issues areas. And then Friday ended up being a 16-hour day uh, marathon bargaining session with him pushing both sides uh, the way only Vince can do, right? Um, and uh, we were able to get a deal just after midnight on uh, Friday night. Okay, are you happy with it? I'm very happy with it. I think this is going to go a long ways. To, you know, it's been well documented. People said, well, you know, you know, give us some details. I can't because of the, um, uh, the way the bargaining process and ratification, it wouldn't be fair to our members or to you know, to discuss the details out. So both parties, it's standard practice, not that. But I can tell you, um, I, I'm very comfortable that uh, once our members have a, and everybody gets an opportunity to see this, that they'll be uh, happy that it addresses the key issues that uh, we were pushing for. And, mm-hmm. and that, it, and I think that's really, I think that anybody that knows me knows me, I wouldn't be recommending or bringing back something that I wasn't comfortable with. And uh, I think they just have to be patient as much as it's exciting to know things. But I, I think really it's well documented our challenges, Simi, that, uh, you know, the service delivery that you talked about in rural and remote PC, particularly and the, and, and delays across the province are, and, you know, a direct result or competitiveness at uh, recruit to recruit and retain but uh, those that model of uh, on-call precarious on-call model in rural and rural bc is really hurting us so those are two big areas that i'm comfortable to say we were able to address and when we're able to uh, share everything everybody will see that so yeah do you feel like this is something that will put paramedics more on par with other provinces i know that was an issue yeah, absolutely. I think that we've done, been able to do that. But one of the biggest challenges we had was being able to do that within the shared mandate um, that are governed by every all the public sector unions, but to also address 
those unique recruitment and retention challenges. Not unique to us. I mean, uh, the doctors, the nurses, other health sciences, all those unions had the same challenges, uh, teachers. So uh, we were able to do it uh, to address our issues, I believe, and I'm comfortable with that. Um, it is going to allow us a foundation moving forward. It isn't going to fix the issues overnight because we we took over 10, 15 years to get in the situation we're in. So uh, we're not going to fix it all overnight, uh, but uh, I really believe this can give us a foundation to get on with reviving the ambulance service as I used earlier. Okay, so that that would go a long ways. And when I talked to you, I think just last week in the middle of negotiations, we were talking about recruitment and how that is still still an issue, right? And especially in yeah. some of those smaller communities. Yeah, our entry level is really through the smaller areas, and uh, that's really been problematic because of the model we have and our lack of competitiveness. So we've uh, we've really tried to address that in this collective agreement, um, and that's going to take time to really change the tune. And, and I think uh, one of the things we're going to have to do is really buckle down and really um, make sure that the recruitment and and, uh, hiring campaigns are really done properly. But uh, once we have this collective agreement stabilized, um, you know, I I didn't mention that uh, our plan is to keep those temporary measures in place until we can transition into the new collective agreement so that there's a smooth, so we can keep those measures in place. So that's a good positive thing. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think that uh, there's more work to be done uh, outside of the collective agreement, obviously with additional resources to deal with the, uh, uh, with the shortages of ambulances actually for the demand. Um, you know, that's the announcement the premier, or sorry, the minister said last July on regard with respect to um, how we address getting to uh, the most serious calls in metro and urban areas. That's still a, uh, a big challenge for us in those delays we're seeing in particularly in metro and urban centers. So we still got some work to do. There's no question. Okay. So what about the timeline here though? What are the next steps, Troy? Next steps. So this week, actually, their meeting is already this morning to go through all the details of the package, make sure we have all our I's dotted and T's crossed and everything's fine tuned. So there's no mistakes and errors and omissions. Um, just, and then we'll finalize the package this week, and then we'll be able to put it into a presentation to take out to our members and a ratification tour and presentations. Um, and that should be done within the next couple of weeks, or started at least uh, within the next couple of weeks. And it's, uh, you know, the logistics are going across the province for 4,600 members, make sure we give everybody an opportunity to see the comprehensive package. So that's going to be a couple of weeks at least uh, to run that. And then we start a voting process um, through there. So there's 4,600 members in every corner, right from Adelaide mm-hmm. to Victoria. So it's not an easy feat, but we're fairly sophisticated in our electronic uh, and and uh, processes. So we'll be able to do this efficiently, but it doesn't happen just overnight. All right, there's be more to come then. Troy, thank you. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's break down more of BC's jobs numbers, shall we? We know that overall the rate looked pretty good when those numbers were released late last week, but there are some areas there that, you know what, are of a concern. 81% of British Columbians are concerned that Canada will face a recession next year. That's according to an Ipsos poll. Even economists from the Royal Bank of Canada have warned that a moderate recession could arrive as early as the first quarter of this year. So where are the areas that we are concerned about? Well, joining us now is Brenda Bailey, BC's Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hi, good morning. Now, when we look at those numbers that we just got from StatsCan, where are the jobs coming from? Yeah, thanks for the question. So um, the great thing about getting the December job numbers is that we now have the data for the whole year. So we can take a look at what happened in 2022. 
So um, the first sort of high-level number I'll share with you is that we added almost 63,000 jobs uh, last year, 62,900. And in terms of your question, where are most of those jobs coming from? It's been driven, primarily those increases have been driven by private sector and self-employed jobs. That's about 54,000. But there's also a really interesting story in these numbers, which is three quarters of the job growth has been driven by women entering the workforce. Um, And that number is about 47,100. That's a really good news number. And I think it also speaks to the fact that um, having affordable childcare is really important to our economy. Are there still areas of the economy that lag a little bit in terms of hiring or getting back up to pre-pandemic levels? We've done we've done a good job actually of um, uh, getting back up to pre-pandemic levels. We have recovered from from uh, the job losses in the pandemic, and we've actually led the country in regards to that recovery. Um, but it's important to note that we want to ensure that these dro- jobs are throughout the province, and so. Um, I'm really interested in tracking what's happening in in rural jobs, and we are continuing to see growth in that area as well. Okay, so are there parts, like are there regions that are doing better than others? What are some of the hotspots? The unemployment rate on Vancouver Island is extremely low. Unemployment in British Columbia is reaching historic lows at 4.2%. The historic low we have on record is 4.1%, and the numbers are even lower on Vancouver Island, which is really interesting. Okay, so when you look at the the numbers then that we had, would you say that that was like ramping up for holiday spending? Was that like retail jobs? Where did that increase come from? Yeah, well, you certainly see some ramping up for retail uh, in the December numbers for sure. But uh, across, you know, looking at what's happened throughout the entire year, it's going to be much broader than that, of course. Um, And we've seen a lot of these jobs are um, jobs that are coming into sectors like clean energy, manufacturing, uh, construction, and those are areas that are doing really well in the province, and it's important to, to keep that uh, that driver going. I'll, I'll share with you that my background's in the tech sector, and I know that uh, a few months ago there was a really interesting survey that came out that showed that um, Vancouver actually is leading North America in terms of growth in the tech sector. Um, of course, there's you know a lot of great tech happening in our province outside of Vancouver, but this particular survey looked at Vancouver. We're ahead of places like Austin, Texas, and Seattle, and Toronto and Montreal, so seeing pretty awesome growth there as well. Are you worried, though, that, I mean, here we've got these great numbers for BC for now, and there's all these warnings about what might happen in 2023. Like, how can BC prepare for that? Yeah, absolutely. We know that there are, there are pretty strong economic headwinds coming our way, for sure. Um, that's happening all over the world. And there are global factors that are that are driving that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something for us to keep a really close eye on. But we do know that we have been leading Canada with the strongest economy. Well, we continue to see job growth. We continue to see uh, low unemployment. And um, we just really need to keep an eye on these numbers. Okay, and so what can we do to prepare? I mean, you mentioned the tech center being so hot here in B.C., but it feels like even the tech sector is being battered right now. Yeah, it's not happening equally everywhere, though, which is really interesting. Um, We've seen really deep uh, layoffs in uh, the Valley in particular, and certainly there have been some layoffs in British Columbia, but what I'm hearing on the ground is folks that have been laid off have been able to find work pretty quickly, and we're still seeing a lot of um, empty jobs in the tech sector. People are still really looking. So I'm I'm not um, trying to, you know, portray an overly rosy situation. I know we need to watch this. Things can change quickly. 
But right now, uh, we're not seeing the depth of cuts that we're seeing other places in the tech sector here in British Columbia. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. It's my pleasure. Nice to, nice to be on with you. That's Brenda Bailey, who's BC's Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. This is Mornings with Simi. Our parks have become very popular destinations. We saw that all throughout the pandemic, right? People needed to get outside. They needed to do something and they headed to our parks. What we ended up with in a lot of cases was a traffic jam, usually in the parking lot. So visits to regional parks in Metro Vancouver have dipped just a little bit since their peak in 2020, but those parking problems have persisted. So Metro Vancouver has an idea for that. They've got a new pilot project. We're going to learn all about it right now with the help of David Levers, who's Metro Vancouver's Division Manager of Visitor and Operations Services for Regional Parks. David, thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Nice to be here. So tell me about parking, trying to get parking at a regional park. How difficult is it? Well, we manage 23 parks around the region, and we don't have significant parking issues at all of our parks, but in a number of them we do. So we have a number of different approaches we use depending on the situation, depending on the park. And as you alluded to in the introduction, we're piloting a new project this year to develop uh, real-time parking information data for potential park visitors to view before they come. So how would that work then? Like, would I have to sign up? And yeah, tell me about this. Yeah, so at Iona Beach and Boundary Bay, um, two of our busiest beach locations, we're going to be piloting a project this summer where um, we will be collecting data at the park level and communicating that information online to people that can use that information while doing their trip planning. So ideally, somebody will be able to go online or on an app and be able to check out what the real-time parking situation is at either of those parks. You may have seen it in some of the commercial parking lots around the region where it might indicate the number of spaces that are available, what the percentage capacity is at any given time. And we're hoping that users will use that information to make decisions about their visit, whether that means uh, coming at a different time, choosing a different location, or, uh, or maybe adjusting the day they might choose to come to the park. It'll avoid a lot of frustration for people. There's nothing worse than getting all the way out to the park and finding that there's no place to leave your car. Right. When is this going to be rolled out then? We are working with a contractor right now to, uh, to put the system in place. It will be in place for this summer's beach season. Okay, so people will have to sign up for this, right? They won't need to sign up. It'll be a, uh, they may need to download an app, um, and from that point on, they'll be able to check the real-time parking situation at these two parks, or there'll be a web link on the Metro Vancouver website that they can go to. Okay, are these the two busiest parks, would you say? I wouldn't say they're the two busiest, but they're two parks that we want to pilot this new approach. Um, We've used a various number of approaches to manage parking demand around the region, including pay parking, shuttles. Um, But this is a new technology that we are wanting to demonstrate to see whether it could be used throughout the system at some of these other busy locations. Are these other methods then that you have tried, do they work? They definitely work. Um, we, we, you know, we like 
you know, all parks experienced through the pandemic, you know, such incredible growth in the amount of interest in being outdoors in these natural areas. And at that point, we put pay parking in at both Tumtu Woofton Belcara Regional Park and Lynn Headwaters Regional Park. And both those programs uh, are operated seasonally and have had a, a a really positive effect on being able to manage that parking demand. Right. I guess you're just a victim of your own success, David. Like those, these Metro Vancouver regional parks are very popular. Well, these land bases are incredible places, Simeon, um, to provide opportunities for people to connect with nature is so important to people's physical and mental health. And that's never been more important than it is now. Is it very challenging, though, in some of these cases? Because I know some people have a tendency to go, well, I came out this far, I got to find, I got to park somewhere. Well, there's real challenges at the two parks that we put pay parking in, in that the, the adjacent neighborhoods just don't have the capacity to take that overflow. So we worked cooperatively with the village of Belcara and Anmore and the Tri-Cities around the Belcara project. And we implemented pay parking at Lynn Headwaters in North Vancouver in step with the District of North Vancouver when they introduced pay parking at Lynn Canyon Park next door to ensure that, you know, we were managing this parking demand um, on a local level. And how did those work out then? How did the pay parking work? Well, um, it worked out, it's working out very well to, to do what it is intended to do, and that's decrease the average stay length, increase the turnover, which allows more visitors to enjoy the parks. And it also promotes carpooling, cycling, transit, and shuttle use. We worked with TransLink um, regarding Belcara Regional Park, and they increased service to the park last year, and we saw a 73% increase in ridership using Coast Mountain to get up to Belcara last year versus personal vehicle. Wow. Okay. So it just sounds like we're, we're going to have to do a lot of different things, David, to tackle this problem. We will. And each municipality is different. We work with the local governments to, to roll out any of these programs. And we're looking at all kinds of different approaches. And we're really excited about this real-time parking information system. Okay. And so I guess people should just wait for this and you'll let us know when it's up and running? Yeah, there'll be, um, you know, we'll announce that through our media sources once it's up and running. And, you know, those those members of our community that use those two parks regularly will, will learn of this very quickly. All right. I look forward to hearing about it. David, thank you. Hey, you're welcome, Simi. Have a good day. That's David Lee versus the Metro Vancouver Division Manager of Visitor and Operations Services for Regional Parks. As we know, those regional parks are very popular. So this is a very interesting pilot project they're going to be doing at two particular parks, Iona Beach and Boundary Bay. They're very busy and there's, you know what, they're pretty, I wouldn't say isolated, but there's just not very good transit access to these two particular parks. And so they're doing, they're launching this website, which will be coming up before the big summer rush begins. And you will be able to check the website to see what the parking situation is like at these parks before you head out so you can make a decision about, oh, I don't know, it's like 100% right now and well, maybe we'll go when it's quieter, but it'll just allow you to plan your trip better so you don't get frustrated when you get there as a way to kind of ease congestion at those two particular parks there. And again, those are very popular parks for good reason. They're lovely. 
This is Mornings with Simi. We are a province of bridges. The provincial government has a bridge management information system, and that system lists 2,973 bridges and 73 tunnels just in our province. And guess what? As you know, there are always people who love them, right? There's a White Rock-based author and photographer who has made it his job to document them. And for more on that, we're joined by our Raji Sohal. This sounds like such an interesting and creative project. Absolutely. And Derek Hayes, the author behind this book, he took up this project during the pandemic, Simi. So when you and I were doing things like gardening and figuring out how to grow more tomatoes, maybe bake bread, he canvassed all around BC and he took so many images. He's a photographer as well as a historian. Uh, took so many pictures of the bridges of BC, started doing some research. The book is called Incredible Crossings. You've got it right here in your hands. Uh, the History and Art of the Bridges, Tunnels and Inland Ferries that Connect British Columbia. And it's equal parts history of our province, but it's also gorgeous. It makes a nice coffee table book because of all the photo- uh, photography in there. Lots of archival photography, but also all the contemporary pictures you're seeing there. Those are ones that Derek uh, took himself. And bridges, they just fascinate, fascinate us, right? Like they're such a delightful thing. They're an engineering feat. Uh, they're complicated in their construction. They're just a total wonder. And I love seeing the photos uh, in this book of the older bridges, especially because they had so much uh, character. They were so unique, whereas, you know, modern bridges that have replaced those truss bridges, on the other hand, are, uh, they're functional, <laughs> they're easier to maintain, but visually they're not so exciting, right? Than the modern ones. And I talked to Derek Hayes about this new book on BC bridges. And he told me about Simi, there's a bridge near Nanaimo that was made for bungee jumping. There were uh, temporary bridges built during Second World War in the remote north that floated on pontoons. There is just a fascinating history of bridges in BC. And Derek told me that the Pitt River Bridge is fascinating to him because it seems to have nine lives. It's just changed so much over time. The Pitt River uh, Railway Bridge, for example, uh, was uh, uh, was uh, built as a wooden structure in 1883, and then replaced by a single track steel truss in uh, 1907. This is by the Canadian Pacific Railway. But by 1914, just before the, set of the First World War, they decided to uh, replace it with a double track bridge. But the the, the old bridge, the 1907 bridge, was bought by the provincial government and moved uh, in sections just upstream to create a, a new uh, road bridge. That, in turn, in 1957, was replaced by a, a double-track uh, road bridge, purpose-built road bridge. But the, the bridge was bought by a company called Western Canadian Steel, which amazingly had a, a smelter and a rolling mill on Mitchell Island uh, in Richmond, and uh, they took the the bridge down and, 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 and in sections and sent and barged it to the, a new location so that they could service their new mill, uh, both by uh, rail and by road. And uh, and another couple of sections of it were bought by the what the railway that was then called the Pacific Great Eastern, uh, now BC Railway and now CN uh, between uh, North Vancouver and Squamish, and used uh, to bridge a couple of uh, uh, streams uh, on that on that line, the Furry Creek and 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 um, the Mamquam River. So the bridge is still there, even though it's been repurposed twice.
which is kind of an interesting and surprising story, I guess. Derek uh, knows the history of all these bridges in BC, the thousands, and I asked him what his favorite bridge is. Uh, long ago, I bought a, a fisheye lens, which, see, which can see 180 degrees in a, in a circle. And I drove across the uh, Alex Fraser Bridge with the uh, camera pointing vertically uh, through the sunroof of my car in order to take photographs of the, the bridge, bridge, uh, bridge's cables and, and piers. And because of the nature of a fisheye lens, it bends the, the, uh, uh, the, the lines, the cables, uh, quite a bit. Uh, in order to sort of fit it into the circle and, and produces a really interesting and very, I think, artistic result. So that's uh, one of my favorites, I guess. And what's your opinion on the Patello Bridge and the changes that it's going through? Well, uh, the Patello Bridge needs to be replaced. I mean, I think there's no question about that. I think it's a shame, however, that they intend to, uh, to tear it down at the, you know, once they've built the new one, uh, which is go- uh, being built right beside it. Uh, the same thing happened with uh, with the Port Man Bridge. Uh, of course, they built a new bridge right beside the old one and then de- demolished the the old one, uh, which I, I thought it would be nice if it, they could keep them for uh, you know, for bicycle, bikes and uh, and pedestrians. But the problem, of course, is that they uh, bridges like that require an enormous amount of maintenance and therefore a lot of cost, so it's probably not cost-effective. I love that. You know, I was looking through this book, Raji, and what got me a little bit sentimental was the pictures of the old Portman. And the Portman and the pictures of it under construction in 1961. I remember my family telling me that they arrived here before the Portman was built. Oh, wow. And so that was like a big deal when the Portman Bridge got built. And so seeing the pictures of the old Portman, and he was like, oh, yeah, that's like the bridge of my childhood, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. One of my earliest memories is walking over the Alex Fraser Bridge when that had just opened in the mid-80s. That was a big deal. Yeah, it was. And I remember walking across it and just being astounded. I love, I love our bridges. Yeah, there's some pretty nice ones out there for sure.